so it took the leap, you know, and I, for the better part of a decade, I had a side hustle as being a speaker, facilitator, etc. And, you know, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I talk to people about failure. I talk to people about fear. I talk to people about vulnerability and authenticity all the time. And then it's like, well, I've got my own fear. I don't want to take this leap. What if I'm not successful? What if, what if, what if? And it was all the negative what ifs rather than what are the possibilities? It was the what if I fail? What if this isn't successful? What if people are like, oh gosh, he's just doing this because other people are. And that second chapter for me really came from taking the leap because nothing will freak you out more than leaving a full-time job with benefits and a standardized paycheck to be like, I'm going to go out of business on my own. And then less than a year later, we got a global pandemic. How do you navigate change? It's a question we think about often and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin and how do you develop the mindset and skill set to be successful? Welcome everyone to the Sprint to Success with Design Thinking podcast. I'm your host, Saba Kidwai. Join me each week as I share the stories and strategies from the world's leading researchers and practitioners about why they believe the answer lies in practicing design thinking. The changes we've experienced over the past year have provoked a series of questions and feelings for many of us about the ways in which we live and work, and it's also provided an opportunity to pause and reflect on our priorities. One of the questions I've heard many people wondering is, how fulfilling is my life? Are my priorities in line with my purpose? Do I enjoy the work that I used to do? Are there new types of opportunities I would like to explore? These used to be questions that were a luxury to even wonder about. But today, with the rise of the internet and many of our social media platforms, it's democratized our ability to design what we want our life to look like. The challenge, however, is how well prepared are we with the mindsets and skill sets to navigate these choices, leverage these different platforms and technologies to actually design what that journey looks like. In The Second Mountain, a book by New York Times columnist and best-selling author David Brooks, he shares, every so often you meet people who radiate joy, who seem to know why they were put on this earth, who glow with an inner kind of light. Life for these people has often followed what we might think of as a two-mountain shape. They get out of school, they start a career, and they begin climbing the mountain they thought they were meant to climb. Their goals on this first mountain, he says, are the ones our culture endorses. To be a success, to make your mark, to experience personal happiness. But when they got to the top of that mountain, he says, something happens. They look around and find the view unsatisfying. They realize this wasn't my mountain after all. There's another bigger mountain out there that is actually my mountain. And so they embark on a new journey. On the second mountain, life moves from self-centered to other-centered. They want the things that are truly worth wanting, not the things other people tell them to want. They embrace a life of interdependence, not independence, and they surrender to a life of commitment. Today, I'm talking with Dan Fail, 
as he shares his story with vulnerability and humor, recounting what it was like to discover and embark on the journey of climbing his second mountain. Dan is an accomplished storyteller and international speaker. Having worked for over a decade on college campuses, advocating for safe and positive student experiences, Dan now travels the country as a full-time speaker, coach, and consultant, engaging audiences in hard but needed conversations. Dan shares personal stories that engage and inspire others to be their authentic selves and be brave enough to have the conversations that matter. I begin by asking Dan to share how he discovered what his second mountain was, or as Dan calls it, his second chapter, and what it was like to make that transition. So I would say if I had to break this up into two chapters, um, because I feel like I've got a a, a novel of sorts, um, the two main chapters I'd say are before I became a full-time speaker and after. And so before I, you know, I can give you all of the like nitty gritty, like born and raised in the, in North Carolina and went to undergrad and then went to grad school and like all the things Um, for 15 years, for 15 years, I worked in the higher education space. So my first job after grad school was working with alumni groups uh, regionally, nationally doing um, kind of uh, reunions, that's that sort of stuff. And then for the better part of a decade, I was a fraternity sorority advisor. Loved it, loved working with students, loved, you know, trying to help us realize our great potential that we have. And then um, had a, a small stint back into the alumni world and kind of realized one day that I didn't like working in a cubicle, uh, which is where it was, where I was based. I uh, was just not a fan. I loved the people. I love the people that I worked with. I loved, you know, the people that I was, that were volunteers that I was able to work with. Uh, I just... It, Nothing sucked my soul like a cubicle. And then on top of that, there were some, we'll call it differing opinions on work-life balance that I had with my supervisor. Whereas I was like, I would like to go see my daughter's softball game. And I would be questioned, is that important right now? This is, my job is not my life. (laughs) You know, like that is part of my new philosophy. Um, And so part of that was, it wasn't feeling fulfilled. You know, I, again, liked the people, didn't like the work. And I think that showed up in many different ways, physically, emotionally, et cetera. And I kind of realized one day I, I just couldn't do it anymore. There was a, you know, a straw and I'm happy to, to jokingly tell you about that straw later, uh, but there was a straw that just kind of happened. And so where I decided to go is I called up uh, a speaking bureau and I was like, hey, what are the odds of me going full-time speaking in like six weeks? Uh, and so took the leap, you know, and I, for the better part of a decade, I had a side hustle as being a speaker, facilitator, et cetera, and, you know, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I talked to people about failure. I talked to people about fear. I talked to people about vulnerability and authenticity all the time. And then it's like, well, I've got my own fear. I don't want to take this leap. What if I'm not successful? What if, what if, what if? And it was all the negative what ifs rather than what, if, what are the possibilities? It was the, what if I fail? What if this isn't successful? What if people are like, oh gosh, he's just doing this because other people are. And that second chapter for me really came from taking the leap because nothing will freak you out more than leaving a full-time job with benefits and a standardized paycheck to be like, I'm going to go out of business on my own. And then less than a year later, we got a global pandemic. So uh, seeing where, where I've come and seeing where I'm at now, 
has been almost like chapter two and a half slash three in the last six months. I've shown up better for myself personally and professionally than I have in many, many years. And so um, loving, kind of loving this path, kicking myself that I didn't start this chapter sooner um, and, and waited so long. It's hard to even remember what the world was like in fall of 2018. But for Dan, it was the year he made the decision to climb that second mountain or start a new chapter, as he says. One thing that definitely wasn't on his or any of our radars was a global health pandemic that was going to come in 2020. I always appreciate hearing people's stories, especially when they share them with such authenticity. Last week, Brant Menzoir emphasized the importance of knowing our values to guide the decisions we make. He highlighted how too often we make decisions based on other people's ideas and goals versus our own. As David Brooks would say, that's what gets us stuck on that first mountain. Dan highlighted this as well. And while we often hear how Gen Z are the generation that want to live a life of purpose, the truth is we all do. We just didn't all have that luxury growing up. Dan's story though is evidence that it's never too late to climb and think about that second mountain. Dan shares that often when we're making these decisions, we think of all the things that could go wrong instead of all of the things that could go right. And the truth is there will be things that go wrong. It's our mindset though, towards these challenges that ultimately will allow us to persevere. And I imagine that that resonates deeply with many of you right now. So I asked Dan to tell us what the early months of the pandemic were like for him at a time when conferences across the globe were being canceled. When I told my ex-wife I was doing it, when I told friends and family I was going to be a full-time speaker, the most common response was, well, it's about time. <laughs> and I'm like, where has all of this support been? And so just seeing that and hearing it, it was like, it was a, a great validation of, oh no, this is the right work. I've just been in my own way. So my last in-person, uh, like with an audience was, I think March, like 7th or 8th of 2020, uh, flew to, to Utah, did a, a, an engagement and then came back and then everything shut down right after that. My calendar went from a decent March, a very good April, and then some scatterings in the summer and in the fall to clear it out completely. I'm I'm talking not even postponed, not even rebook later, canceled. So I would say from the better part of mid-March through, we'll call it November, I think I was in fetal position, crying or in therapy or crying in therapy, or <laughs> just I, like, I didn't know what to do. And so I had a lot of just not self-fulfilling prophecies of I'm not good enough, but a lot of self-doubt and a lot of imposter syndrome of, oh gosh, I can't make it. Like I, I can't function. I can't make this work anymore. And then you see some of the other, my other friends who are speakers completely pivot on a dime and just rock it. And then I got into that comparison place and it was like, no, 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 that's their path. That's their journey. Here's my journey. And then when I finally kind of got over myself and a lot of that took therapy and working on me of really, where do I want to go and what do I want to do? And then I just had a couple of really good speaking engagements in November. And then December, I felt like the old me, but better. And so for me, that path for the better part of the pandemic was 
was not great. I was not in a good headspace and wasn't bringing my full self to anything I was doing. And I think finally doing some different, you know, mindset hacks and just surrounding myself with people who not only challenge, but champion me has made, ooh, has, has just made all the difference. Um, and that's why I said like, when showing up now, I'm more active. I'm, well, maybe not. I'm still a bit of a sloth on the couch. However, like I'm more active in terms of how I'm showing up online. I'm more authentic in terms of how I'm showing up and it just feels good. And I, so that's, I think, part of that journey that I've made. Dan shares that ultimately he was the one standing in his own way. It makes me wonder as we think about that second mountain and all the things that could go wrong or all the reasons why first we've got to do this one more thing. Is it really those lists and those fears or are we just in our own way? Seth Godin calls this voice your lizard brain and learning to recognize it, learning to quiet it is essential. Dan shares that one of the best ways he did this was by surrounding himself with people who both challenged and championed him. And I love that he shares that dynamic because too often we've have people around us, what I call the rah-rah people. They're great. They cheer you on. They tell you how great you are. They're the people that tell you that outfit looks great when perhaps it really doesn't. Well, what you really need is someone who can balance the commentary, somebody who knows your strengths, who can tell you what's going well, what's working well, and where you could be stronger and how you could keep growing. Differentiating yourself today as a speaker is no easy task. Yet watch any of Dan's videos or read what people say about him and you'll see why his friends and family were telling him it's about time you made this transition. Dan doesn't just show up and speak. He's there to design conversations that matter. So I asked him to tell us more about what this means and how he does this. For me, having worked on college campuses for so long, and when you're a speaker, sometimes you're just, you're brought in and you do your hour, you do your 90 minute or however long your keynote is, and then you just leave. That's not fulfilling for me. And so one of the, the questions that I always ask clients is, okay, great, I'm with you for that hour, but what else can I provide? And so especially when we're traveling, you know, again, post-pandemic, that's going to be my go-to question anyway. In fact, I'm still asking that for virtual engagements of, is there anything else I can do for you? And I think when it comes to the, the creating conversations, my newer philosophy has been conversations that matter. How do we create and build conversations that matter? And what do I mean by that? I mean, I think too often we throw away conversations all day, every day. Thousands upon thousands of potential great connections and conversations are lost because it's the, hey, so how about like, how are you? And if you just say fine or busy, and then I'm like, okay, cool, me too. That is, I threw away an option and a possibility for us to really dig a little deeper. Well, what do you mean you're just fine? Like fine is not a feeling. So what is like, what do you mean by this? Oh, you're busy. Okay. Is that busy making you stressed? Is it busy or is it productive? And so even just follow-up questions, that's what I mean by creating conversations that matter. Because think about it like an iceberg. There's a cool piece on top of the water. And that's just the standard day-to-day conversations. Hey, how are you? How's your significant other? How's your parents? How's your whatever? What are you going through? Like just that stuff. But everything under the surface, as soon as you start to get into it, is so cool and can be really rich in depth 
that's what I mean is finding ways for teams, organizations, people, human beings to create environments that you can be brave enough to have the conversations that matter. Because maybe, you know, I remember in college, I had a bad breakup and I didn't know who to talk to. And people are like, oh, like, like, are you all right? Like man up. And it's like, no, that's not helpful. Like, not helpful. Not helpful at all. And so how do we have deeper conversations? And a lot of that comes through with respect, relationships, trust, and how do you be vulnerable to have those deeper conversations? Dan's given us some deep thinking to do. Think about the conversations you had today or the ones that perhaps you're going to have later. What conversations are you throwing away? What opportunities to build relationships are you throwing away? How do we create and build conversations that matter? 2020 showed us that many conversations we had brushed to the side reveal the consequences of what happens when you don't take the time to have those conversations that matter. From redesigning the way we do school, to work-life balance, to mental health, to systemic racism, we can no longer brush these conversations to the side. I asked Dan how we can have conversations that matter even when they're uncomfortable, perhaps especially when they're uncomfortable, because those are the ones that often matter most. I think any conversation done the right way should be uncomfortable if we're going to learn and push ourselves, right? Family conversations can be uncomfortable. Why aren't you having kids yet? Maybe because I don't want them. <laughs> right? Like there's, there's lots of types of conversations that we could have. So like a strategies, you're never going to, like if you and I first met, I'm not going to be like, hi, my name's Dan. Oh, Saba, it's nice to meet you. Hey, what's your biggest fear? Like, like, tell me about a time that scares you, you know, like, I'm not going to start a conversation that way. But if I were to start a conversation with, you know, do you have any siblings? Because then based off your answer, I could follow up and say, oh, you're an only child. I was an only child for about 10 years. And now I've got, you know, I've got three little brothers. And then like, you can unpack family dynamics, or maybe one of my random questions. And I tend to phrase things of, I'm really curious about this, right? Because if I phrase it within a curiosity, it doesn't feel intrusive. Um, and if you're not comfortable answering and be like, well, I'm not really comfortable. It's like, oh, okay, cool. I was just curious, like no big deal. And so, hey, I'm curious, what's your favorite holiday and why? I'm curious, uh, what's your favorite show to binge watch? What's a hobby that you have that, you know, or if you could learn an instrument just in the snap, what would it be? Because that gets people talking. And if I can get you talking about either your own history, your own past, uh, your current status, or maybe like a, a, a passion project, hobbies, what you're interested in, you light up in a different way and then you show up more authentically you, in which case I can follow up with other questions. So if you say your favorite holiday is Thanksgiving, I'm going to be like the colonial Thanksgiving, or is it just the food Thanksgiving? Like, which one are we talking about here? We can unpack that because if it's couched within a, a DEI, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion space, and you say Thanksgiving, I'm going to throw out that joke because like, I'm going to use that joke specifically because then I can talk about well, let's like let's talk history of this holiday and why breaking bread was really stolen bread, right? Like what the, what all that looks like. And you're 100% right. In this day and age, currently, and 2020 showed us and pulled back a lot of layers of that onion of society. And so there's a lot of tears and a lot to work through. And I think, you know, post George Floyd, there's a reckoning that we've had to have. 
And some of my friends who are DEI speakers are having incredible years or the year because they're busy um, and they're being productive and they're engaging communities. I think where I still find a lot of frustration is, is when people chime in on Facebook and they're the, you know, the armchair referees or they're, they're ones that are like, well, Dan, you know, why are you even doing this work? You're white. And I was like, well, yeah, it's because I'm not racist. And then the person says, well, I'm not racist either. I'm like, yeah, but you're also not anti-racist. So like on the spectrum of racism, it's not like it goes anti-racist and then there's a gray area and then it's like a Karen and then the KKK, right? Like that, there's not a spectrum of that. You're either somewhat racist or anti-racist and like helping people understand those moments of education and not coming at it from a, I'm right, you're wrong. Although that used to be my approach. I think coming at it from a, let's have this conversation because this conversation matters. So let's have this. Help me understand where you're at. Oh, you know, like I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Okay. Because you're dressed today and everything matches. So you do see color. So we can't use that as the litmus of, oh, I'm not racist because I don't see color. And and helping people unpack through um, hopefully very real types of conversations that don't feel judgmental. I love the questions, suggestions that Dan shares, and I hope these help elevate the conversations that you're having. Try one today. In speaking to Dan, I'm reminded of how Adam Grant says that too often we think and speak like preachers, politicians, and prosecutors. But if we want to have conversations that matter, we have to think and speak like scientists. When you do this, he says, you favor humility over pride and curiosity over conviction. You look for reasons, Grant says, why you might be wrong, not just for reasons why you might be right. From addressing issues of social and racial justice to designing the future of schools and workplaces, the next few months are going to reveal how many of us are actually willing to think and speak like scientists. While the temptation is there to return to how things were, the moral imperative is upon us to pause and process what we've experienced, where we are and where we wanna go. As Simon Sinek often says, alone is hard, together is better. And this is where I believe collaboration plays a fundamental role. I asked Dan to share the value of bringing in a facilitator to help co-design these conversations and why it's important for us to do this if we're going to think and speak like scientists. It's extremely important, period. (laughs) Why is it extremely important? You need someone who maybe isn't an expert. You need someone who can facilitate a dialogue so maybe it doesn't feel one-sided. And I've only ever blocked one person on Facebook um, from how they came at me and then came at my friends, how they approached this concept of anti-racist. And we went to college together. And, you know, I mean, like there was a lot of, of just commonalities that he and I shared. But then at some point I was like, man, this is not productive for anybody. And there were a lot of people who are like, I'm just ready to sip some tea and watch Dan argue with people. And it wasn't an argument in my mind because it's the help me understand why all of a sudden you're like, well, that's just communist. You know, we've had a black president, like, therefore there is no more racism. I'm like this. And that's one of those, like, you clap your hands, like, not a thing. (laughs) You need a facilitator who's knowledgeable about whatever that topic is going to be to help provide a myriad of 
ways to look at the solution rather than a one-stop shop, one size fits all, because we know that's not the approach. For every single human who says, well, I don't see color, there's a different way to approach that as a conversation. Or for every single person who's like, women already have the right to vote. They're already you know, like represented. Why do we need more women's empowerment? I'm like, this is still not equal. <laughs> and so understanding those is, is super helpful. And I think you're starting to see more documentaries that are serving as the facilitator to these conversations as well. Right. So on Netflix right now, there's Amend, and it's all about the 14th Amendment, which I didn't know is the most cited amendment in all of legal legalese, right? Because it's all about citizenship and what defines a citizen. I never knew some of this, but part of that serves as a facilitator for people to have those conversations. Just like, you know, Tiger King was a facilitator for us to talk about how someone should be charged for murder, but she still hasn't been, right? Like that's a different level of social justice as opposed to different levels of actual, like what I would consider social justice work. But those facilitators are needed, whether that's a person, whether that's a documentary, whether that's uh, the environment that can facilitate better conversations, we need that so that it's not just two opposing sides butting heads all the time, because then no one's gonna listen. I particularly appreciate how Dan highlights the benefits of bringing someone in who isn't an expert in your topic or in your industry. Coming to the conversation and designing with a beginner's mind creates a much more inquisitive dynamic that ultimately deepens our thinking allowing us to examine existing practices and design future ones by ensuring that we're asking the right questions so that we're solving the right problems. Dan also highlights the importance of designing conversations that allow for us to be vulnerable. I asked Dan about how vulnerability fosters a culture of trust and why this is important for organizations to consider. That is a phenomenal question. I have a theory. <laughs> and so, and, and you and I have, have kind of talked about it prior to this, but I have this theory and it's it's all around the phases of failure, um, but it's a similar one. It could be of the phases of trust, phases of change, whatever. I just put failure at the top because when you grow up with the last name fail, you got to have some sort of a failure keynote or leadership concept. I do believe that vulnerability is the foundation upon which everything is built. I say that because when you are vulnerable, you are sharing about oneself. If I am going to share about my oneself, then there is an underlying assumption of trust, but I think that there's an underlying assumption that you're not gonna use it against them because there's a rapport that's already built. Now, I talk to thousands of people a year, whether that's virtually or in person, and I'm super vulnerable because the reason that I'm, I'm open and I'm like, let me share some stories about when I sucked and I was not a great person. And when I was, I failed, because if I can model that and show how easy it is, then you might trust me or trust in me to continue that conversation. So I think vulnerability is the foundation upon which all relationships that are successful relationships, whether that's a work relationship, an interpersonal relationship, relationship with family, like whatever that is, vulnerability has to come there. And if it's not going to be vulnerable, then is it really a good conversation? And so in those phases, right, like if you're more vulnerable, then that's going to open people up to creativity. And so when people are creative, 
right? Think about it when you're, when you're vulnerable and you share something that might spark this piece of like creativity in someone else of like, oh my gosh, I could share this part. And when you're more creative, you open yourself up, up open to more possibilities. And so we actually, I think, need more downtime as society. I think the pandemic has forced some alone, some downtime in terms of creativity, because when you look and see what's been launched and what's been successful, both individuals and companies, et cetera, those who have innovated are going to have a really good post-pandemic life. And I don't think that they're going to go back to, you know, if it's a restaurant that pivoted pretty well, I don't think they're going to go back to like just how it was. I think they're going to continue to keep some of those practices. But also when someone's creative, you see them light up and you see that passion. So if my vulnerability has opened up the door to creativity, that creativity is going to open up the door to my passion. And if I've got a passion project, you're going to see me be like, I'm going to tell everyone about it. I'm going to bring all of you in. And I'm going to be like, let me tell you. And then let me tell you. And then like everyone gather around. I've built my coalition of people. Uh, here's my passion project. Let's go. Uh, and so good leaders, I think, have that passion and the ability to, to show people the creativity around it. And then they're vulnerable to, enough to be like, this idea might not work, but let's try it. In the midst of that passion, you're going to try. When you try, you're going to fail, but you're going to learn. So you're going to learn all of these different pieces of learning, uh, and then that learning is going to lead to failure. And that failure, if you're open and honest about the failure, that loops back around to this concept of vulnerability, because you're going to talk about the failures, how we did well, how we didn't do well, what we could improve upon. So vulnerability really is that foundational item that we can continue to build upon. We often talk about learning from failure, but I love the detail with which Dan shares what that journey actually looks like. Dan reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Charles Schwab, who says, I consider my ability to arouse enthusiasm among men the greatest asset I possess. The way to develop the best that is in a man is by appreciation and encouragement. That enthusiasm, that encouragement and appreciation creates a culture where we feel safe being vulnerable creating the trust that can open up our creativity, allowing us to take risks and lead to endless possibilities. This is no longer a luxury, it's a necessity. One of the conversations I've been enjoying listening to lately has been with Brian Fanzo on Clubhouse, who often discusses how today we live in the creator economy. But finding our place within that requires the very things that Dan is speaking about. As Dan shared earlier, one of the greatest mindset blocks we have to overcome is that of our own inner voice. He reminds us that once we build that momentum with our tribe and try something new, even though the outcome might be unknown, one thing that is going to be guaranteed is that we're going to learn together. And the earlier we do this with people, the better off we're going to be as a society. One of the best ways I've heard this be reframed by Brian Fanzo, who creates a gut check moment when he says, instead of thinking about how people might judge your work and ideas, consider who is missing out by you not sharing them. I tell Dan as he's speaking about all these ideas around vulnerability, trust, and safety that I can almost imagine a pyramid in my mind. And he says he already has one. So I've linked it for you in the blog post he says there's one more element that we need to consider, though, that ultimately holds all these pieces together. Well, don't keep us in suspense, Dan. Tell us what it is.
So I have this concept and it's literally a pyramid. The one I didn't talk about, which I think is incredibly important, is almost like the framework of the pyramid. So what holds it in the triangle itself, uh, which is safety. And that's both physical and psychological, but really more of the psychological safety. Think about companies that don't innovate, right? They don't try. Because if I have this really cool idea, maybe I'm not going to bring it up because I might get fired. Or if I'm a student leader and I really want to try this new project and this new initiative, but well, we've not always done it that way. So why would we change what we currently do? Well, then I'm going to be quiet and never open up and be vulnerable again. And so that concept of I won't lose my job, I won't lose my relationship, I won't lose whatever, that concept of safety really does play into an overall success structure. Yeah, so well, safety would be the overall like glue holding the entire pyramid together, right? So because you can't go from like one spot to another if you don't feel safe. So if I share and then it's like, great, let's, let's be creative or if I'm vulnerable and then it's like, Hey, let's get creative, but I don't feel safety in terms of my ideas then I'm not going to open up because if people are like, well, your ideas are stupid. Oh, oh, well, I'm just not going to share my ideas anymore. So again, that safety piece comes in at every single layer. So yeah, I would say vulnerability at the bottom. And then as you continue to go up in that pyramid, uh, vulnerability unlocks creativity. And that creativity gets those ideas and that passion going. And then from passion, you go to learning because you're learning new things. And then that learning, you're going to learn how to fail. And then again, it's almost like that recycle of vulnerability and failure. The importance of creating a culture of psychological safety was one of the most interesting insights to emerge from my research with Design 39 Campus. When I examined how the teachers, or what they call learning experience designers, were able to break out of their content silos and collaborate and teach together, a culture of safety, vulnerability, and trust is what they all attributed their success and growth to. This evidence reinforces a finding from Project Aristotle led by Harvard researcher Amy Edmondson and Google on how to design effective teams. Oftentimes, the research shared, the assumption is that you need your highest performers to come together to have great team performance with great outcomes. However, they found that it was not the level of performance that differentiated successful teams from non-successful ones. Rather, it was the behavioral norms that the teams developed. I asked Dan, for those organizations that want to have conversations that matter and want to create a culture of safety, what framework or activity does he recommend they begin with? I think it depends on what the intended outcome is, right? So if we're in a work environment and they're trying to be innovative with customer service, then you're going to approach that differently than... Um, hey, we've got a dysfunctional team uh, and we don't know where to go from here. Let's go with that theme because I feel like, and I'm going to think very specifically just sort of just like education, right? Like we are in silos as you probably mm-hmm. do in higher ed. Even if you think about K-12 in higher ed, like we all work in silos. Even if you think about how teachers work, right? We're all teaching mm-hmm. our own subjects and our own time blocks. So let's just call that dysfunction. And let's look at it from that lens. And mm-hmm. what, what advice might you give to people in those scenarios? Because so many people are in them. So I'll use the student uh, approach. So for the, the K-12 and higher ed uh, space, a position that I had for a couple of years as a director, I gave a presentation because it was like, what's the state of you know, the, the students that you work with? 
<laughs> and I remember saying, I was like, it's important that we all acknowledge that these are not my students, right? I have two kids. <laughs> all of these other students, not my kids. They are ours as an institution, right? And my students that are in this one program are also in your program. So they're not just my students, they're our students. And so that's, I think, how we can also frame language, which is why language is so incredibly important uh, of how we phrase it. So is there an activity? It just depends on the group. But a lot of that comes back to what are you willing to model and what are you willing to put out there as the facilitator, the speaker, the, the consultant, whatever that role is, how willing are you? Now, one of the first things I do before I step foot on a campus, before I step foot in an office, before I do any of those consulting works is a phone call, a Zoom or whatever with whomever's paying <laughs> to say how vulnerable, how honest, how like legitimately deep can we go? And a lot of that comes back to understanding where they're at as a culture. Because like you said, if they're at a, a severely dysfunctional, that team captain or director or whomever might think that they are completely fine. And it could be a hot mess express. And so part of that is going to be the questions that you can prompt to get the, the contact or the director, or even maybe it's the, the director's like, we got a lot of work to do. And the people at the very bottom are like, but it's fine. There's a disconnect. And so identifying part of that. One of the activities that I love, and this is usually after doing some work with them is, did you ever watch, or have you ever seen reruns or whatever of Inside the Actor's Studio? No, I haven't. Okay. So it's this great, I mean, it's in essence, a facilitated discussion conversation where the host sits in one chair and is asking, you know, questions. And some of them are random off the wall questions, but some of them are, tell us about a time when you didn't get a role and you're glad that that didn't happen. Or you, you know, you were passed over for a role and then they came back to offer it to you, right? Like, and it's all actors based, but then, you know, in the other chair, it's a famous actor or whomever. And, and they're answering that. Um, those questions. I have only been able to do this a couple times because I came up with the idea and then poof, pandemic. But doing a similar interview with a CEO, a president, a COO, a director, a vice president, whomever that is of quote unquote power to break down and humanize them. Now there's a lot of willingness that has to happen on that individual's you know, radar. But at the same point, if I can showcase that they are human and that they are also scared of underperforming and that they also have all this on the line, then not only have I humanized them, but I've given them something to think about of, why am I not asking my own employees some of these questions? And that I think, again, opens up the vulnerability piece of, wow, I've never shared some of this with people who work for me slash with me. And just imagine how great of an environment that could be if you had actual conversations rather than just water cooler gossip or no conversations at all. As Joe Pelding, former principal at Design39 shares, when we change the language, we change the conversation. And when we change the conversation, we change minds. Even things as simple as Dan's highlighting, such as the difference between saying my kids and our kids changes the dynamic. As we look to stepping off what Dan calls the hot mess express that the past year has been, one of my favorite questions to ask guests is with so much information and so many opinions out on the internet, what is a common piece of advice that you disagree with? I'll say two phrases, but they're related. Do your research, 
Google it. Google, great to house the world's information, right? Like that's their mission statement, to, to be the, the hub of world's information. There's a lot of misinformation there too. So I'll use DEI work, right? So in the wake of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, shoot, go, let's go reverse, Trayvon Martin and years ago, in the, in the wake of all of these racial injustices and killings, a lot of what I would hear is, well, I mean, just, God, just be a better ally, Google it. Well, if you Google, <laughs> you could be led down the wrong rabbit hole. And so that is one that always just irks me. Now, let me also be clear. It is not up to those who are in the minority role to educate those in the, in the majority role. Okay, that's, that's like point number one. However, I do think there's some sort of path or guidance that some need. So I can't, if I'm not supposed to function in a common state of ignorance, <laughs> and just a continual state of ignorance, then I need to be pointed in the right direction. Because there's some great books out there. But there are some that might not mesh with me. So rather than just being like, here's the white fragility book, read this book. Okay. What if I don't like to read nonfiction books? Is there a show? Is there a podcast? Is there... So providing multiple resources, um, you know, like I've, I've got a lot of friends who do that work. If you want someone who really knows it, I'm going to introduce you to, you know, I'm going to introduce you to Jen Fry, Sarah Lowry. I'm going to introduce you to Justin Jones. Fosu. I'm going to introduce you to people who live and breathe this work who can provide you better resources than myself that hopefully are going to be impactful and meaningful to you. Um, so the whole like Google it thing, we got to retire that. I love it as a resource, but it is not, it is not the end all be all of the correct information to create social justice change or just general pieces. I couldn't agree more with Dan. We often hear if we don't share our stories, someone else will. I also appreciate how Dan highlights that learning is personal. We all learn differently and one of the greatest advantages to the world that we live in today is that we can learn and share in so many different mediums and in so many different ways. So another question I've recently been enjoying asking guests is when thinking about organizational change, what do we need to unlearn? I'll use what worked for me, not just worked, working, what is working for me because it's a continued work in progress. I think on my end, for many, many years, I, I did not believe in mindfulness and meditation and journaling. And all, I was like, you go charge your crystals, write in your journal, do your woo-woo stuff. Like, I'm, I'm good. I don't need any of that. Um, <laughs> and I joke with people that like, I, I still see some of that in that capacity. And part of that is because my therapist recommended like, Hey, you should do some mindfulness. You should do some meditation activities. Uh, and I was like, okay, cool. I'll try. Right. I'll try. I tried my first class and I'm using quotes in that class was a woman who literally started the class and it's on like a zoom style. Uh, and it's not just me. It's like multiple other people who have done it. Some of this is their fourth class. Some was their first and it was me. I was the only one that was the first. Some have their cameras on, some off. So it's a total Zoom setting. And her whole thing was, okay, everyone, right? With the calming voice. All right, everyone. I want us to go ahead and gently close your eyes and find your inner sunrise. 
and, and bask in the warmth of that sunrise. And every now and then I'm going to, and then she pulls out a freaking gong and rings the like gong, right? Like rings it and then says, peace. And I'm like shaken every time that she rings this damn gong. And I am like in my head of meditation and mindfulness is stupid. And if this is what, it, and, and like one woman is having a legitimate like breakdown or breakthrough, I couldn't tell. Um, and I'm here sitting of like, I don't get it. And we did three 15 minute sessions of that. Any mindfulness practitioner worth their weight uh, will say like, if you're a beginner, try it for one 15 minute session, not three 15 minute sessions, uh, almost back to back in the span of an hour. And so I continued, and this was, by the way, late November, 2020, when I was doing this, <laughs> I talked to my therapist. I was like, I can't, I can't go back to that class. I will try it again. I tried it one more time. I was like, I can't do this gong. I can't do the piece. I can't like, my mind is, is, is too many different places. I then signed up for a, how to, you know, be more engaged on and how to leverage media and do all this. Well, the first activity they did was are all around mindfulness. And in my brain, I'm like, oh great. You know, I roll all the way through the back of your head. And what I realized is I've been in my own way for the better part of 30 plus, I mean, I'm 40 now. So for the better part of like actually identifying myself for 15, 20 years, like I've stopped myself. So if there's a practice that I would love for people to stop doing, it's to stop selling ourselves short. I would love for us to acknowledge that maybe in our current friend group, we're just not being supported the right way. Uh, or maybe in our environments, we're not being supported the right way. So finding ways to get that cohort, get the group, get the people who are going to uplift um, and challenge you and support you along the way. But really, it's the like those who aren't just going to say like, well, find your peace and find your gong and your inner sunshine, like not those people or maybe or maybe that is your tribe, which is fine. Like those aren't my people, but they could be someone else's people. And finding that and being okay with it, because what I realized is that my experiences were valid. I had just never been really validated. And so if you can understand and show up as you authentically, vulnerably, et cetera, and, and not let yourself get in the way. I've talked myself out of so much progress. And like I said earlier, when I finally said, hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a full-time speaker, family, friends, people. Oh, about time. We, thought, we were wondering if you'd ever do this. I never knew that's how they felt. I also never asked them. But then also reverse, like I stopped myself when I wanted to do it over a decade ago. And now I'm like, imagine all the good I could have done in the world, but I'm still doing good. I'm not mad about it because my journeys leading up to this point have been my journeys. Um, and so I would love for people to unlearn the negative self-talk or the comparison place that we find ourselves in social or social media wise and really acknowledge that we're powerful beings that really can make a difference. Maybe we just don't know how. And the best place to learn is not to Google, but to, to find those coaches and resources that can help you grow. I love when guests bring us full circle as Dan just did. Having us reflect what and who is really in the way? Is it all those excuses that we have in our head? Or is it us? Are we holding ourselves back from climbing that second mountain? 
It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you still have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Sprint to Success with Design Thinking community. 